You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Rupert Sheldrake, biologist and author of The Science Delusion and other books. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The idea that the laws of nature are fixed is taken for granted by almost all scientists. And within physics, within cosmology, it leads to an enormous realm of speculation, which I think is totally unnecessary. We're assuming the laws of nature are fixed. Most of science assumes this, but is it really so? In an evolving universe, why shouldn't the laws evolve? And if we think about that, then we realize that actually the whole idea of a law of nature is a metaphor. It's based on human laws. After all, dogs and cats don't obey laws, and in tribes they don't even have laws, they have customs. So it's only in civilized societies that you have laws. And then if we think through that metaphor, then actually the laws do change. The laws of Britain today are not the same as the laws of Britain a hundred years ago. So laws actually evolve. If this were laid out at the beginning, I think science would become much more interesting because people would see there are big questions here, which we can discuss or look into instead of starting straight into a physics course with no discussion whatever of these assumptions. I first went to India in 1968. I was on my way to Malaysia to work at the University of Malaya on tropical rainforest plants. I was very keen to work in the tropics because biology is much more exuberant in tropical countries. I mean, the richest floras and faunas are in the tropics. And as a biologist, I wanted to have some personal experience of that. So that was my motive for going. I had a grant from the Royal Society to do this. But I traveled through India and Sri Lanka on the way to Malaysia. And then after my time at the University of Malaya, I traveled back via Thailand to Cambodia and Laos. So I saw something of Southeast Asia. I was immensely impressed by uh, these different cultures because here were cultures completely unlike anything I'd been brought up with with highly intelligent people, very sophisticated worldviews, spiritual practices like meditation, which I thought were enormously important and helpful. So it literally expanded my mind as to the possibilities of human culture, knowledge, and experience, and helped jolt me out of a narrowly mechanistic framework of thinking within which I'd been brought up. It also made me aware of a whole range of religious and spiritual practices that I hadn't known about before. That was in 1968 to 69. Later in 1974, going right through to 1985, I was mainly living in India, where I had a job in the International Agricultural Research Institute for the semi-arid tropics in Hyderabad. I was the principal plant physiologist and then the consultant plant physiologist. So I was working with Indian colleagues, with Indian farmers too, because being in agriculture, I had spent time in villages working with farmers. And again, was enormously impressed by the riches and the depth of Indian culture and the spiritual practices that go with it. Of course, India is a very multicultural society. I had many Muslim friends, I had Jain friends, I had Buddhist friends, as well as Christian friends, and of course, many Hindu friends. So all these different cultures and practices and made me aware of possibilities that I just hadn't known about before. You wrote about this in your books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond. Yes. In those books, I, I discussed seven different spiritual practices, which have been investigated scientifically. And 
why I wrote the books is because I'm both a scientist and a spiritual inquirer, and I tried these various spiritual practices over the years. And there's now been a lot of scientific studies of spiritual practices that show that, in general, they make people happier, healthier, and live longer. I think a certain amount of creativity is drawing upon what's already there. You know, all artists are influenced by other artists and by other things in the collective culture. But there's also true creativity. And I think that my own view of morphic resonance as collective memory it would say that all of us draw upon unconsciously as well as consciously on a collective memory. And all animals draw on a collective memory of their kind as well. But if they only drew on the collective memory, they'd only be able to repeat or repermutate things that have already happened. And evolution would slow down and grind to a halt eventually. Yet we know that the entire cosmos is an evolutionary process, the cosmic development since the Big Bang. Everything has evolved, chemicals, molecules, life, planets, stars, everything has evolved. So it's not just a matter of permutating what's already there. There's true creativity involved in nature, and it's only through the interplay of habit and creativity, or collective memory and creativity, that truly new things can happen. So I think artists are engaged in that process, as indeed scientists are, or inventors, or anyone who's doing anything new. We don't know where it comes from, but there's true creativity involved in evolution, both human and natural. I went through, like many people who study science, at least in my generation, a conversion to atheism. My parents were Christians, I went to an Anglican boarding school. But during my scientific education, I became an atheist and thought there's nothing but scientific facts and religion's out of date and science represents progress, all those kind of standard attitudes. But I began to doubt that, partly because I began to doubt the dogmas of science itself. I found it too restrictive, too narrow. I was studying biology because I loved animals and plants. And it didn't take me long to notice the first thing we did to study animals or plants was to kill them. So we were really studying death, not life. So I felt something had gone wrong in science. I began to question the dogmas of science. The beginnings of that process began when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. But when I traveled through Asia, through India, and then Sri Lanka, and living in Malaysia, being among people who were mainly religious in one way or another, and I was exposed to people of many different religious traditions, it didn't seem to me that they were stupid and ridiculous, as the atheist propaganda tells you. It tells you anyone who believes in religion is feeble-minded, doesn't understand science, needs to have some kind of blind faith in something to give them consolation because they can't face up to the reality of life, etc. Instead of finding these religious people I met in Asia, fitting that atheist stereotype, I found people who were lively, curious, interested, funny, whose faith really gave them great strength and resilience, and a much deeper sense of the nature of the mind through meditation and through prayer and through spiritual practices like fasting and pilgrimage. So that made me much more interested, and I took up meditation and yoga and then when I was working in India, I explored Hindu ideas in much more detail. But then I realized that being from England, from a Christian background, it was much more natural for me to follow a Christian path. I felt much more in accordance with my you know, habits, traditions, culture. And so it wasn't exactly a sudden switch. I 
started going to Anglican services. I was confirmed in the Church of South India, which is an Anglican church. And it didn't mean I was no longer interested in yoga. I do yoga every day, and I meditate and did yoga this morning, so it's part of my life. It's not a matter of rejecting other traditions, it's a matter of re-grounding myself in my own. I'm not an evangelical Anglican in the sense that I think everyone should become an Anglican, but I think people whose background is Christian and Anglican are probably better off following the tradition of their ancestors. I think people who come from Muslim backgrounds better off following a Muslim path or Hindu backgrounds following a Hindu path. But in the West, there's a tendency for people who come from Christian backgrounds to turn atheist and to reject their own tradition. And if they take up any kind of spirituality, it has to be from some other tradition. Some people call this the ABC attitude, anything but Christian. So, you know, shamanic drumming, Native American dream catchers, a bit of yoga or Buddhism light. That's a typical kind of new agey mix of things. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with these practices. I've written books about them, but I think it's helpful for this to be grounded in a tradition, in holy places, in a tradition of music, of song, of culture. So, for example, I go to church every Sunday if I can, wherever I am. And one reason is that it connects me with the local holy place where people have prayed for centuries. Another reason is it's a local community, and there are very few other sources of local community left in the modern individualistic world. I sing together with people I love singing, and it means I sing with people from my community. We pray together, we chat afterwards to keep up with each other's lives. It's a, a community-centered activity. And then through the year, there's the various festivals, obviously Christmas and Easter, but all the other festivals which give a structure to time. Now, all religions have these. They have a series of festivals and collective celebrations. I think these are really important parts of human life. And if we don't follow our own traditions, then it's harder to follow other people's traditions because, you know, if you live in a town in the north of England, if you start following Tibetan Buddhism, then all your neighbors haven't even heard of most of these things. So it's harder for it to be collected. It becomes a much more individualist thing. Whereas if you follow Christian traditions, you're more in tune with the community. So for me, that works. And I think it works for other people, as long as their own traditions are not oppressive. I think one thing that would help would be to actually spell out these assumptions on which the sciences are based. Because most people are never actually told these are the assumptions. It's just taken for granted. So, for example, the dogma that the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain and is confined to the inside of the head. This is taken for granted in 99% or more of neuroscience research and psychology research. But it's not the traditional view of the mind. All traditional cultures have taken the view that our minds are much more extensive than our brains. For example, in vision, when we look at anything, we see the images of what we're looking at as being outside us. I mean, I'm looking at books at the moment on a bookshelf, and I'm seeing the images of those books over there, about six feet away, on a bookshelf. Now, the official view is the image of those books is actually inside my head. I'm producing a kind of controlled hallucination inside my brain, a virtual reality display, and then imagining that these images are actually out there 
I'm suggesting they actually are out there, that our minds extend outwards in every act of perception, every act of vision, and they're not confined to the inside of the head. So I think if students who were studying vision or psychology or neuroscience were presented with the possibility that the mind could be extended beyond the brain through vision and in other ways, which is what almost all traditional cultures assume. And it's actually what most people in our own culture assume. I mean, most people who are not academics find it really hard to believe that some scientists think that it's all inside their head. I mean, they find that such an incredible view. And yet, within the scientific world, uh, a lot of scientists can't believe that anyone believes the mind is extended beyond the brain. So if there were simply, you know, half an hour's discussion of this question at the beginning of a neuroscience or psychology course, people would then be aware that actually there are certain assumptions we're making here. It's not a fixed fact. It's not as if we understand consciousness. We don't. We all live in an electronic smog for a start. We all live surrounded by telephone communications, Wi-Fi devices, etc. Since our cells are electromagnetic and our brain activity is electromagnetic, it's hard to believe that this is having no effect on any of us. Uh, it's almost impossible to avoid it. I mean, I have all my computers on wires. All my devices are wired. I don't have a mobile phone. I have telephones with wires. So I'm rather old-fashioned in the sense that I don't actually want to live in an electronic smog because I think it's unhealthy and maybe having long-term effects, which we don't know about yet. It's important to know about our own cultures and something about world history. I think it's important to be aware of traditions and including the religious traditions of our cultures because they help to integrate and connect us. To abandon them means we're disintegrated and disconnected. Obviously, everyone needs to know about science and technology because they're such an important part of the modern world. But I would begin scientific courses by making it clear what's open questions and what are simply assumptions, as I already discussed. I think it's important to be introduced to the culture, literature, music, and other forms of art and architecture, and the great buildings. Every ancient civilization has wonderful buildings as part of his culture, you know, like the great cathedrals of Europe or the temples of India. I think it's very important to connect with those as well. Nowadays, people's memories are probably getting worse because they look everything up on, on cell phones all the time. But I think learning certain things by heart is very important because it means they're then part of our being. Nothing can take them from us. So I think learning a few key prayers and poems appropriate to the culture one's growing up in are very important things to do as well. And that's not very much part of modern education. And of course, learning to sing and to dance and to celebrate and the elements of basic sports. And uh, all these things are very important too. It's not just a matter of looking at screens most of the time. So I think these are some of the things which are important. And I think that learning things by heart is important too, like poetry. Or prayers. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.